Hi. So I'm Patrick with the census. Just a couple questions, two minutes. Is that okay? Sure, no problem. Perfect. So census night is April 3rd. Do you plan to be here? I will be here. Perfect. Sunday, April 3rd will be a big day for Ireland. It will be the day when every household in the country sits down to answer questions about who they are, what they do, and even what they believe in. But the census is more than just a roll call. I live in Galway. I live in Cork. I live in Dublin. And while it arms policymakers with the information they need to make decisions around things like homes, schools and transport, it paints a picture of Ireland, telling the story of the country now. And we are creating an Ireland which values women. And telling that story to generations yet to come. And for the first time, this census will allow us to speak directly to those future generations. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Conor Pope. Today, what the census means for Ireland. Telling the story of Ireland means drafting questions that give us insight. But how are those questions decided upon? How are the new ones introduced? Eileen Murphy is the head of census administration at the Central Statistics Office, and she has some answers when it comes to those questions. So we do uh, have a certain number of questions that we have to ask under EU regulation and obviously ones that we ask in every census so that we can keep the comparisons over time. We had a public consultation and we had over 400 submissions as to what people would like to see on a census form. And we convened what we call the census advisory group. So the group uh, decided on a certain number of questions that they thought would be useful. And then we went out to test them in a pilot survey in 2018 to see that they were statistically robust, that we could get uh, the proper data from them. And in terms of the questions that are put forward by the advisory committee, are there any outstanding questions or any questions that stand out for you in, in, in the latest census form that maybe weren't there in previous ones? Funnily enough, we're asking a question on on working from home. And this was decided before we knew anything about COVID and it's asking uh, if you work from home and then if if you do uh, how many days a week you work from home and I suppose at the time we were we looked at the question you know people were maybe doing an odd day at home here and there uh, but we all know how things changed so it'll be interesting to record now at this point in time as we're moving out of that full COVID situation into moving back maybe to blended working uh, where where the, the barometer has moved across that. And there's, of course, a lot of societal questions, really deep questions that get asked. Uh, and I think I think this is the first time people are being asked a question about who looks after their children. Yes. So uh, we had lots of submissions from um, various groups asking for data in this area. And the thing was, there, were, there was no centralised data on childcare and on childcare providers and uh, what sort of childcare provision people are using. So um, we this is one of the new questions on the form that's really important and uh, will probably help to the government to decide on policy in the future around childcare. Obviously, there's always a degree of controversy around the census, particularly around some of the questions. And one of the areas of controversy tends to be the questions about religion. So does a lot of thought go into the questions about religion and the sensitivities that come attached to those kinds of questions? Like, for instance, I know that you can say you're a Catholic, but you can't say you're a non-practicing Catholic or a lapsed Catholic. Whereas a lot of people might feel more comfortable saying I'm a lapsed Catholic as opposed to saying I have no religion whatsoever. What kind of thought process goes into that? The religion question is one that we always get a huge number of submissions on and 
over 100 of our submissions this time were on this question. Um, and I suppose the, the issue for us is to balance uh, the needs of the data users with the individuals. As you say, people look at this, it, it's a highly emotive topic and, and people are coming at it from lots of different areas. So we have to try and balance that uh, and to make a question that is understandable and gives reasonable data at the end of it. And also to, to ensure that there isn't a break over time, because if you totally change a question, then you can't compare any changes between that and a, and a previous period. We actually convened a, a subgroup just on this topic, and it was they that advised the change to the question from in 2016 was what is your religion to now it's what is your religion, if any, and to then move because of the addition of the if any to move the no religion, which was at the bottom of the list last time up to the top of the list. And is that move from the bottom to the top significant? No, we tested that in the pilot. That was one of the things we tested in the pilot and it had no uh, uh, change to the statistical accuracy of the data. And I think another thing that's made a few headlines in recent days has been the question about people who choose not to declare themselves either male or female will have a biological sex assigned to them on a random basis. Was that the most appropriate response, do you think, to to somebody who chooses not to uh, declare themselves male or female? So, look, we recognise how important this topic is to to so many people in Ireland. And it was equally important to us that when we would introduce a question on on gender identity, uh, that we would um, ask the right question and provide the right possible answers. And and we've been testing a question on this topic in some of our household surveys and our pulse surveys. But it didn't make it into the census 2022 questionnaire. What we said was we recognised that some people might have a difficulty ticking one box or the other. And what we said was if you had uh, an issue with ticking one box or the other, uh, the alternative would be to tick both. Um, and what we were advising in the on our website was that there will be no change to your form. So your form will stay as you um, marked it. And so in 100 years time, when it gets released, it will be your form as as you responded. But when we then uh, anonymized the data and aggregated into our data set, we have to have a category of male or female for everybody on that data set, because most of the census analysis is done on age and sex, etc. So uh, then we will randomly assign in that data set a male or a female tag. And as the, you know, statistically, the distribution of male and female across the country is 50-50. So we will assign 50-50 male and female to anywhere where we need to randomly assign. Taking a census is a very old practice. The story of the birth of Jesus begins with Joseph and Mary heading off to take part in the census ordered by King Herod. Dr Kevin Cunningham is a lecturer at TU Dublin and a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society in London. He explains the origins. I call myself a, a statistician and um, statistics is now it's become this kind of thing which is about uh, measuring uncertainty and things that are right and things that aren't. But actually originally comes from the word state and, and the original statistics was all about measuring the state, measuring how much land there was for kings and queens to try to understand uh, the capacity of a state to invade another state. But that is essentially what statistics has always been about. It's about measuring the country. And the census mm. is, you know, it, it is part and parcel of that. 
And have, have you been able to chart or have we been able to chart as a society some of the biggest changes to the way we live in Ireland over the last 10 years or 20 years or 50 years? I mean, what are the big monumental shifts in our society that you've noticed? I think one of the biggest ones, most staggering changes in Ireland is actually around education. Uh, to take one specific demographic group, 30 to 34 year olds, right? 30 to 34 year olds in 1991, which isn't that long ago. Today, they're at the end of their retirement. They're kind of the end of their career. They're kind of heading towards retirement at this point in time. But of that group in, in 1991, about only 42% had, had not completed uh, second level education. 18% had a third level. But so it was a re- relatively large proportion of them didn't have you know, a second level uh, education. Compare that to 2016, and it's only 12% that haven't completed a second level. So there's this massive change, particularly in in kind of primary and secondary schooling. And third level qualification, you go from 18%, and there's a lot of stats here, to 61%. The numbers are just Mm. staggering. The change in the level of educational attainment in Ireland in that period it is enormous. And, you know, Ireland went from a country for which it was kind of a laggard in, in terms of education to one which is like a, a leader, I guess, in, in that in that. And that's I think that is one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest features, in fact. Um, there's a couple of others as well. Yeah. What are the others that you, you, you've noticed? Religion is the, is the obvious one. The last census, uh, only 10 percent said that they had no religion um, and 78 percent identified as being Catholic. That uh, is only a relatively small change over that kind of 40-year period from 1980 to 2020, let's say. It's, it's only a relatively small change. However, you know, if you look at other questions which ask people about how often they attend church, there's actually a much bigger and obvious difference which explains all the kind of dramatic changes in referendums we've had. So if you go back to 1980, uh, as high as 80 to 90% would have attended church on a, on a weekly basis. Um, and that's fallen very sharply. So around 25% as, as close as, ni- as 2020 attend on a, on a weekly basis. So that's a, a huge change. And that change influences how we think about society. There's, there's lots of uh, debates around, uh, around schools and, and the so-called sort of baptism barrier and that's a, that sort of stuff. So, so it is quite an important uh, question in that regard. But that is another one of those dramatic changes. I think religion and education are probably the, the, biggest, uh, the okay. biggest changes in what society looks like today. Coming up, how the census time capsule will allow us to communicate directly with our descendants. The census gives us demographic details that suggest how many people will be looking for housing in years to come. Dr Kevin Cunningham has noted that a baby boom in the noughties and in the last decade will mean even more young people will soon be looking for a home to call their own. I know David McWilliams wrote that book, uh, The Pope's Children, describing the baby boom in the late 1970s, early 80s. That's a huge demographic group. And there's another sort of uh, baby boom that's kind of happened uh, sort of about 35 years later. Um, there's, a, there's a boom of kids which are aged between 5 and 15, um, which is quite interesting because you know, today we're going through a bit of a housing crisis and we could talk about that in a minute. But, uh, you know, that second generation, that kind of secondary baby boom, let's say, that the kids age five to 15, at some point they're going to start to look for houses and, and start to go to college. And that can create 
and a big impact. I mean, you know, this isn't going to happen in Ireland, but, you know, in some countries, these kind of what are called youth bulges, they can have quite a dramatic effect. Um, I don't know if you remember the the Arab Spring back uh, in 2012, but one of the primary explanations for that kind of large uprising across Arab countries in that period was because they had this massive cohort of um, the population that had been relatively highly educated and hadn't got any kind of job to go to uh, in 2012 and they hadn't anywhere to emigrate to. You know, in Ireland, we have this this kind of pressure valve that basically anytime the economy goes goes badly, people emigrate to to the UK or, or Australia or wherever. Um, but in other countries where they've had these kind of youth bulges and there hasn't been the jobs that it's created, um, you know, it's created a lot of unrest and that sort of stuff. So not only is there a housing crisis for this current generation, but, you know, that that group that's coming up behind them is about 25 percent bigger. So when they look for a house, you know, not only are they going to be more people looking for a house, but there's actually an even bigger demographic group going to be looking for homes as well. I'd imagine that, well, I, I wouldn't imagine it. It's a fact that Ireland was a largely homogenous society in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, really. There was a small level of ethnic diversity and almost everybody spoke the same languages. Has that changed in recent census data? Yeah, I mean, um, we've only had three periods of, of positive net migration. The, ni- the 1970s, which was, as I mentioned, relatively prosperous. There was a Celtic Tiger and now today since, since 2016. The last census, the biggest group would have been the Polish people from Poland, uh, 122,000, which would have been for the first time a, a demographic other than people uh, from the UK being the largest in Ireland. You know, when you go, Ireland is so different now that when when you go back to 1991, the largest um, population outside the UK um, were actually uh, people from the United States, followed by people from Germany. So, you know, the, the composition of the types of people arriving in Ireland has changed rapidly. And of course, housing is a big thing, but it's not the only thing on the agenda for policymakers. And what other things do policymakers look out for in the data before they decide where public services should go? And is what the policymakers and the civil servants want then actioned by politicians? Or does that all, all that stuff just go out the window? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that gets into politics itself, I think, doesn't it? I mean, that's... Uh you know, that's the priorities of political parties, whether they want to invest in infrastructure or not. I mean, the politician's job is is just meant to be the ordinary person and to respond to the priorities. You know, do you want a, a statue or do you want a park or do you want a statue or do you want to put more money into the into healthcare? Those kind of basic top line questions and and the the job of the civil services through knowing information such as using the census, they should be able to give the department, give the politicians, the ministers, that is, the right advice of, okay, let's say you want to um, increase uh, renewable energy, or we can see from the census and any data that we have that this is probably the best way uh, to do it. We can see that the housing stock in certain parts of the country is relatively old. Um, We can see that there's lots of old houses with, with relatively poor insulation. You know, those sorts of that sort of detailed analysis isn't the job of a politician. It isn't their job to kind of, you know, know all that sort of detail. Mm. It, it, it's absolutely impossible for them to be able to do that, in fact. In fact. So, yeah, it, it, it kind of, you got to um, separate um, the role of politics in between what the civil service and the department's job is, that it's the kind of knowledge 
the expertise and all that sort of stuff versus the politician whose job is is just to be you know the ordinary person's gut of what is more important is it health or is it housing if i could ask you to forget about statistics for a second and focus on psychology do you think people tell the truth on the census form or do you think they lie i mean do you speak the Irish language? It's very easy to say, oh yeah, fluently yeah. on a census form when it might not quite be as fluent as you might like to think. Yeah, well, I mean, people always try and paint themselves in the best light. There is usually a, a, an issue with the education question more generally in polling and that there's a recognition that some people might be more likely to kind of pick a higher level of educational attainment than they actually have sometimes. Um, but uh when it comes to the Irish language, that's a really interesting question because I did a poll and we asked people about their level of knowledge of the Irish language. And we modified the question to say, well, not can you speak it, but also to include, can you understand it? Because I think there's a there's actually a significant difference between, oh, yeah, I could, you know, I could have a conversation. It may be a very crap conversation, but ask me to understand TG Cahar. It's much more difficult. So there's a there's definitely a massive cohort of people who kind of can speak basic Irish and, and kind of get through, but can't actually understand fluent Irish when it's spoken on the radio or TV. Um, and, and that's a big difference. What does it mean to be fluent? <laughs> you know, are you a fluent Irish? Can you speak it? There's lots of different categories, I think, that aren't quite covered uh, in the census. One of the most novel aspects of this census is the time capsule. For the first time, there will be a blank box where you can leave a message for your descendants. Historians and future generations will be able to see that message in 100 years' time after the census is unsealed. Eileen Murphy explains why they've included it and what they're anticipating people might say. So the time capsule is a new section on the forum this time. It's a voluntary section. It's optional. You don't have to do it. There is a space on the back of the form and we felt some people had come to us and said um, they, they weren't able to record things that they wanted to record on their census form because we know that census forms are, are a historical record. And in 100 years time, when they're released to the public, lots of um, academics and historians will be looking at these forms uh, and analysing them. Um, so we said, well, we'll this free space is open to you to put whatever you want in there. And I think it'll be something for social history um, in, in 21, 22 to see what life was like for us. We'll have, uh, you know, lots of people have been sort of throwing out things about what they want to do. You might just want to say what life has been like for the last two years and how you've come through it all. Some people are talking about sharing secret family recipes. Um, some people are talking about tracing around baby handprints or footprints or, you know, thinking of your family and in your descendants, what they might like to know about your life. The same as we're looking at the 1901 and 1911 census forms. And, you know, you can see the name and the handwriting and the age and where they lived. But that's the bare information you have about them. If you could find out something about the personality or the person themselves, wouldn't that be really interesting to know? It's kind of a big burden of responsibility because you're really speaking to people 100 years from now. So you want to say something profound. Yeah, and, and I think some people are a bit frozen as well about what, what they should or shouldn't put there because it feels like you should put something really important, you know. <laughs> Might be just hello, hi. <laughs> you know, I wish I could meet you. <laughs> you could always confess to a crime. Ooh, well. <laughs> Have you been watching too many soap operas, Connor? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Now, what kind of time do we need to set aside to to fill in this form? Probably talking maybe 
10 to 20 minutes for two people to fill it in, maybe 20 to 30 minutes for a family. And then if you want to do the time capsule, you know, you might have to have discussions about there might be uh, differing opinions as to what should go in there. So that might take a little bit longer. Brilliant. Best of luck, Eileen. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Aideen Finnegan. We'll be back on Wednesday. Wednesday.